This is Hal Hester, lead pastor of Vine Life, and this is our podcast, The Empowered Word. I want to thank you for joining us today. I hope this message inspires you, builds your faith, and gives you perspective on what God is doing in your life. Please enjoy the message. Good morning. Good to see you this morning. Hope that you are doing well. Good to see your faces. Hey, uh, before we get into the message, I want to remind you, if you didn't pick up on that on the three things, uh, next weekend, uh, you know, I, I actually, you know, I've been really praying about this, ordered some special weather just for ugly Christmas sweater Sunday, and it appears, unlike everything else I ordered on Amazon, this is not on back order. Apparently, we're going to have some cold weather, so, uh, you know... Make sure and wear your sweater, ugly or not, you know, we'll be the judge of that. No, I'm kidding. Um, uh, anyhow, please, you know, wear your Christmas sweater. If you don't have a Christmas sweater, you know, borrow one, uh, wear something else ugly. No, I, I, you know, I mean, just let's have a good time together. I'm looking forward to it. Also, also, just as a reminder, it's Bloodmobile, you know, is going to be here next Sunday. Uh, so as you know, listen, this time of year, it is always in high demand. There are always, uh, there's lots of, um, unfortunately, lots of accidents, people traveling on the highway. There's a great deal of need during this time. Also, here's the other part that you may not know. Not only is the demand up, but the giving is down typically over the holidays. People just are busy they're doing things, and they forget, even if they're regular givers, right? So uh, please take time to do that uh, this next Sunday. Uh, this Sunday, you know, this year's no exception to the need. And so uh, if you give blood, please do. All right. <clears throat> well, here we are, third Sunday of Advent, the, Ad the Sunday of joy, if you're following the Advent calendar, uh, which is, uh, of course, I think, uh, something worth celebrating in and of itself. But for those of you who have not been with us here, we've been talking uh, throughout this series uh, about the faithfulness of God, in particular against the backdrop of the faithlessness of men. In other words, looking at how we are consistently, you know, kind of fickle, really, right? We proclaim that no one is greater than God, that we love no one as much as God, that we would give ourselves our lives, right? We even sing songs celebrating how if I could have just one thing, I would choose you, unless, of course, it comes on a particular Sunday or what, you know, anyhow, listen, uh, here's the reality is that there is the faithlessness of man, but God is always faithful, and that really is the primary message of Advent. As we're ramping up, as we're leading up, we've been pointing to these things that throughout uh, history, from the very beginning of the Scriptures, starting in Genesis 3 and just looking at the sweep of history, there's this continual promise that God is going to do, and then the weight of the Scriptures of Him fulfilling those things, of Him bringing them to pass, so that you and I kind of stand at the precipice of looking toward time eternal, looking back over all that He's done, and we can say, God is faithful. I have reason, I have confidence to believe that what is left to be fulfilled will be fulfilled because he has kept all of his promises up to this point. So, Advent is a time of renewing our expectation in the final coming of Messiah. That expectation that one day, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is the Messiah to the glory of God the Father. So today, we are looking at a very famous passage in Isaiah 9, 
Uh, of course, it is, you know, probably everybody's, uh, you know, if you've ever heard Handel's Messiah or whatever, it's probably the most sung of all the Christmas carols. Uh, you see it even, this Isaiah 9 passage, on much of the Christmas decor. You know, if you like, if it's not Santa Claus, but, you know, if it's actually like verses and things like that, um, you know, is this whole thing about unto us a child is born. So probably one of the best known of all the Christmas texts of course, it is typically associated primarily with the you know, traditions around the child in the manger and things like that. It is often disassociated from its primary context, that of the kingdom of God, of redemption, uh, you know, and uh, the expectation of what it means uh, for God to be not just any king, but the king of kings, the foundation of the universe, God in the flesh, making his way in the world and bringing us a sense of expectation for his kingdom yet to be fulfilled. So uh, that's where we're going to be this morning. We're in Isaiah chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. Let me ask you, if you're using a phone or a tablet, please set that to silent. I'm going to read it from the English Standard Version, but please follow along in whatever translation you have. One in your lap's my favorite. Let's take a look. Isaiah chapter 9, beginning in verse 1, and we read these words. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light, those who dwelt in a land of deep, deep darkness, on them light has shone. You have multiplied the nation. You've increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with the joy at harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior and battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And the zeal of the Yahweh of hosts will do this. The Lord has sent a word against Jacob and it will fall on Israel. And all the people will know Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria who say in pride and in arrogance of heart, the bricks have fallen but we will build with dressed stones. The sycamores have been cut down, but we will put cedars in their places. But Yahweh raises the adversaries of resin against him and stirs up his enemies. The Syrians on the east and the Philistines on the west devour Israel with open mouth, for all of his anger is not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. The people did not turn to him who struck them, nor inquire of Yahweh of hosts. So the Lord cut off Israel, head and tail, palm and branch, reed in one day. The elder and the honored man is the head, and the prophet who teaches lies, in, uh, teaches lies is the tail. For those who guide this people have been misleading them astray, and those who were guided by them are swallowed up. Therefore, the Lord does not rejoice over the young man 
has no compassion on the fatherless and the widows, for everyone is godless and an evildoer, and every mouth speaks folly. For all this anger has not turned away, his hand is stretched out still. For wickedness burns like a fire, it consumes briars and thorns, and it kindles the thickets of the forest, and they roll upward in a column of smoke. Through the wrath of the Lord of hosts, the land is scorched, and the people are like fuel for the fire. No, no one spares another. They slice meat on the right, but they are still hungry. They devour on the left, but are not satisfied. Each devours the flesh of his own arm. Manasseh devours Ephraim. Ephraim devours Manasseh. And together they are against Judah. For all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. Blessed be the reading of God's holy word. <clears throat> All right, not exactly sounding like a Christmas text, right? I mean, like when you're reading that whole last part especially, right? I mean, it's like, I mean, you're, first you're in the middle part and you're like, oh yeah, that part, that the Christmas, you know, you know, unto us a child is born. That's all, you know, all the warm fuzzies and, right, you know, and the Handel's Messiah, you can hear it in your head almost, can't you? You know, I mean, if, unless you've never heard it, of course, but, uh, but, you know, for in that moment, most of us are kind of like that warm fuzziness and then you get to the last part of the chapter there and you're like going, wow, uh, this is intense and like it's bloody and... Like, are you sure this is like the Christmas text, you know? And uh, yes. Let me give you a little bit of context. It might be helpful in all of this. You know, last week we were in Isaiah 7. And, you know, you've got to understand that it is pro in the time of Isaiah, the kingdom is divided and Isaiah is prophesying primarily to Judah, some things to the north, uh, but primarily to the southern kingdom. Uh, last week, you may remember that Ahaz uh, was in a terrible turmoil uh, there in Isaiah 7. He was uh, waiting for the Lord's deliverance. He was trying to decide, what should I do? Do I join forces with Peckham uh, and Rezin and go up against Assyria and wage war? That seems like a fool's errand. Assyria was extremely powerful, the most powerful nation on the earth at the time. And so it seemed like a foolish decision. They thought, well, maybe uh, Assyria is too busy in the east dealing with the Babylonians, uh, with the Medes and the Persians who were not yet superpowers but on the rise. And uh, the, the question was, are they so busy on the eastern front that we could attack them from the south and from the west and be able to succeed? In the middle of that, Judah's neighbors, Syria... Uh, and Israel are saying, if you do not join us in this battle, then we're going to depose you and we'll put in our own king there in Judah who will do what we want to. We know there's another faction, there's another party. They even name the guy and say, look, listen, everybody knows he doesn't agree with you. The majority of your kingdom's in disagreement with you. Even as you're trying to make a decision, your uh, decision to uh, appease Assyria is causing you political turmoil, and we'll just overthrow you. We'll put in the guy who's fighting you. You can't imagine that, right, in politics, that there might be somebody who's like thinking, we need to just contain the problem and not go to war, and other people are thinking, no, we need to go to war, and if you won't do it, we'll put somebody else in. Does that sound probably not remotely familiar? But anyhow, uh, so everybody's fighting over what voice they should listen to. Go to war, don't go to war. 
And actually what's happening in all of this is you go through chapters 8 through uh, on in, uh, in, in the following, uh, what, what happened there in Isaiah 7, is actually Ahaz, although he's not a good king, he's kind of a weak king, Isaiah is actually telling him, prophesying to him, do not go up against Assyria, you will be destroyed. And that was what Isaiah 7 was all about. He said, listen, I'm telling you that these two other nations that are opposing you, Syria and Israel, are going to be, they're, they're not going to be able to do anything to you. Uh, I'm going to defeat them. And, uh, and this, within three years, this woman is with child. And when she gives birth to that child, it's going to be a male child. And before that child is three years old, everything's going to be fine, before he knows his right from his left, before he knows right from wrong. And then he continues that thought uh, there in chapter 8. You get to chapter 8, and he says, listen, uh, that it is the person who actually was the young maiden was a prophetess. And so he says the prophetess has the child, and now this child is, uh, uh, is he's growing. I'm telling you, by the time he is eating curds and honey from the land, just like it was predicted, that these things will have come to pass. Now, let me bring you up to date from 7 to 8. They've invaded. You've heard from the Lord. Do not go to war against these people. I've got your back. And yet, they're invading. Now, unless you've ever lived in the midst of war, what invading means and what winning means is two different things. Like, think right now about what's happening in Ukraine. Russia invaded. There are some pockets where there's no evidence of war. There are other places where they've been devastated by war. Things are happening, and the political voices are competing against one another, and some people are saying, we should overthrow Ahaz, and we need to put this other guy in. And Isaiah is still saying to Ahaz, stand your ground. Your army is not up to the task. You don't have enough people. You don't have enough resources. Listen to the voice of the Lord. Do not go to war against Assyria. In the day that you do, the Lord will lift his hand of protection against you. Now, you might be thinking in the midst of that, anybody here ever had things where God was working in your life, but it wasn't going the way that you thought it should? Hello? Well, God, I'm doing what you said, and I'm still having trials and hardships and difficulties. And some people are even going, see, shouldn't have listened to Isaiah, should have listened to me, we wouldn't be dealing with this invasion. Can you imagine the political turmoil? Can you imagine how he might be second-guessing God in this moment? And in the midst of that, Isaiah is still saying, keep your focus, listen to the Lord. If you go to war against this guy, if you join forces with them, you will be wiped out just like them. I want you to stay the course in less than three years, these guys will be nothing. Hard to believe at that moment? If you've got people invading you, 
Are you thinking to yourself, hey, if I just hang on for a couple of years, everything will be fine? Actually, most of us, the moment things start to go wrong, we start second-guessing ourselves, making other moves, and we're trying to control the situation. And Ahaz is tempted. He starts making some political moves. He starts making some religious moves in which he begins to pursue ungodly things. He starts consulting mediums. He starts digging into worshiping other gods, hoping they will protect him. So he's still worshiping God, but he's kind of like dabbling in everything, just trying to hang on to his seat as king. Bad decision. So, as things are unfolding here, chapter 8, we read, the evidence of Isaiah's prophetic word is there with him. He's got that, and yet it's volleying back and forth, chapter 8, back and forth, between the many voices in this conflict. Chapter 9, uh, which is uh, just like chapter 7, uh, gives us this powerful prophecy that is, one, seated in the moment, and two, has a secondary manifold meaning, Remember, uh, last week I brought up the whole thing of historical manifold, right? And in historical manifold, it means that there is something that is historical happening in their life and times that is immediate. There is an immediate meaning of the prophecy for them. The manifold is the many unfoldings of that prophecy where future things are meant that have nothing to do with their day and time. In this case, the historical is the answer to Ahaz in his day and time. The manifold is pointing to Messiah, the unfolding that, had, that came 700 years later. Okay, And so uh, you know, we want to separate those two things, understand that the, the prophecy has both aspects. So here they are, dealing with this battle, dealing with all of this struggle, and so you and I first want to dig in on the historical. Now, if you'll remember from last week, I said the role of the prophet in the Old Testament is first and foremost about reinforcing the plain instructions of Torah. That is the primary role of a prophet. The primary role of prophecy is not to predict the future. That is a very, very small part of prophecy. It is the smallest part. When someone declares that they're a prophet, the first and foremost thing they should be doing is proclaiming what's already written, not predicting the future. If their role becomes primarily predicting the future, you ought to take a step back and ask yourself the question if this is a real prophet. Number two, the most important thing that a prophet does is they give clear warnings about the consequences of failure to repent. In other words, when you've been told the instructions, if you don't listen to the instructions, there are consequences when you do dumb things. For instance, when you say to your child, when you prophesy to your child, don't touch that, it's hot, and the child touches it, before they touch you say, if you touch it, you will get burned. And the child reaches up and touches the hot thing. Guess what? You're a prophet. You said if you do this, 
this will happen. And it happens. Okay, not literally, okay, but... But the first two elements of the prophetic are, number one, you reinforce the plain instructions of Torah. Second, you give a clear warning about the consequences of failure to repent. Third, is then to point and give a hope for the future. This is what's going to happen when you do dumb, when you do stupid with zeros on the end, when you do these things and this befalls you, I just want you to know I'm not giving up on you and there is a hope and a future. That's Jeremiah 29, 11. Everybody loves to claim I have a hope and a future for you, but we have to also remember that is spoken in the context of judgment. The reason he's telling them there's a hope and a future is because what they're doing right now is hopeless and has no future except disaster. That's why he speaks those words. In this case, like I said, Ahaz chose rightly in not joining with Syria and Israel. He's, he's being told that he's, he's on the right track, uh, you know, uh, which is, you know, uh, and, then, and then even here, um, you know, in terms of uh, what's happening with Ahaz, he's not a good guy, he's not a righteous king, he's a terribly weak leader. He seems confused. No, I'm not implying anything. And, and he's following a doctrine of appeasement. And as he's, doing, as he's doing these things, and Isaiah's prophesying, there are other prophets who are falsely claiming that there's going to be revival in Judah. There are other prophets who are falsely claiming that there's going to be revival in Judah. And they're telling him to go to war. They're telling him that God is, because God is with you, Emmanuel, you just do, and, and if you would just stand up and do something, God will be with you. Hmm, isn't it interesting how people, everybody likes to claim that God's on their side? They're saying, if you will just stand up, then we will find ourselves, you will be like David, the warrior king. But the truth was, this was no longer the age of David. Ahaz was not capable, the people were not capable. This instead is the age of Ahaz, a vassal kingdom of Assyria, unable to win a real war, and the smartest and most economic thing they can do right now is pay tribute to the other king and stay out of trouble. God was using Assyria, the most powerful nation of the day, to police the world. Anybody here ever been frustrated about our role in policing the world? It's a historical role. Every superpower in the Bible ends up policing the world. Hmm. But with it usually comes judgment. Let me say that again. In the Bible, every superpower ends up policing the world. 
but with it usually also comes judgment. If you read chapter 10, verse 8, you find that God said, and by their actions and their arrogance, as they were used to police the world, God would later judge them in less than 65 years. In other words, sometimes what looks like God's favor in terms of power, riches, and might are not God's blessing. Power, might, and money are the world's values, not the kingdom's values. People say power corrupts, but God has all power and isn't corrupt. Power, money, and might just magnify who you are. If you're good with a little, you'll be good with a lot. And if you're evil with a little, you'll be even more evil with a lot. If the only thing keeping you from doing something is that you might get caught, if the only thing keeping you from doing something is you don't have enough money, you're already corrupt. You just don't have the resources. But if you, with the little you have, do what is right and just by those, if those who come into the purview of your little bit of power find kindness and mercy and grace. Those who can be trusted with little can be trusted with much. And those who cannot be even trusted with a little cannot be trusted with much. Then we get to Isaiah 9, verse 7. And Isaiah is prophesying about a future hope when, and, and he's saying, in the future, there is going to be a reign of David, which will restore Judah. And in that day, not only would Judah resume power over Israel, but that there would be this sense of that they would see the restoration of the nation in the great sense, that the other nations would be looking to Jerusalem. And some people took that to mean right away. But here's the thing. It couldn't happen because King Ahaz did not walk with God. Instead, after this prophecy and many others all coming to pass, the evidence of God's mercy and favor coming to pass, after the threat was gone, instead they went and continued to pursue vile behavior and idolatry of the nations. And rather than do what was right by God, not only did they not resume authority over Israel, but inside of six years, Ahaz himself was dead and replaced by one of the most righteous kings of Judah. Funny enough, his own son, Hezekiah. Nobody saw that coming. Nobody saw that coming. And yet, here's the thing. Yet even under Hezekiah, the northern and southern kingdoms were not to be reunited. Even under Hezekiah, they weren't to be reunited because of Israel's sin. 
just the consequences of how it had worked through society so that even though Hezekiah was a righteous leader and a good man, he like couldn't stop the whole nation from just continuing down its perilous course. So even though the government became righteous, it doesn't mean the people are righteous. Might that be a word even for us in our day and age? That you and I could vote in the most righteous president of all time, but that wouldn't guarantee that people are going to change? Again, I have to highlight once again the, the, the story of God's faithfulness despite the unfaithfulness of man that even there in the historical events, Ahaz rule. Ahaz is being unfaithful. Ahaz is being told, like, listen to me. I, I want to give you a good word. Just ask for a sign, right? And Isaiah 7, we're like in there and, and what we find is that he says, is it not enough that you weary men, but now you have to weary God too? Like I told you, ask me for a sign. And now you're going to say, I won't weary God with asking for a sign. Ask me for a sign. Now, even in the midst of that, in the midst of unfaithful Ahaz, here's the thing. God had made promises to Judah. God had made promises to David. God had made promises back in Genesis 3, and here it is, here's what it all comes down to, is that God is faithful even when people aren't. That leads us to the manifold meaning. <laughs> of course, in the manifold, we're actually, when we're talking about the child that is to be born, we're not just talking about the child that was born to the prophets. We're not just simply talking about his rule being extended, uh, you know, or something like that. We're actually talking, uh, and the manifold uh, is about Jesus, the Messiah, King of the universe, coming to set us free in the ultimate sense from sin, death, and Satan's rule. For our purpose, we begin in the middle of prophecy with verse 6. For unto us a child is born. That, of course, dovetails nicely with what we've talked about first week 1, Genesis 3.15, the promise of her seed. It fits nicely with our second week, Isaiah 7, about the child who was Emmanuel, God with us, putting all these pieces together. But as well, it's this fuller text that elaborates on who this child is by lauding him with numerous titles and lengthy descriptions of his work. We even sang about some of them this morning, right? Wonderful counselor, mighty God, or actually in a more accurate translation, the divine hero. I like that title for him, don't you? I, just, I think that sounds you know, even more exciting than mighty God, just but divine hero, everlasting father, or more literally, the father of the future. Don't you like the ring of that? The father of the future. The prince of peace. Each of these titles not only reveal who he is, but, or, or, you know, and tell us about the hope, but these, rather than bestowing on him anything, these are actually his identity of who Messiah is. They're tied to the faithfulness of God. They are an, an absolute contrast to the title that men give themselves. Because here's the interesting thing. As you look through ancient Near Eastern history, all of these titles are titles that rulers of old actually gave to themselves at some point. Can you imagine? 
I mean, I know, I, you see, in our world, that sounds like absolutely ludicrous, the stupidest thing you've ever heard, right? But, but I want you to think in terms of, like, these, in, in times of old, these people would, like, you, you want to talk about self-aggrandizement, God-like characteristics applied to yourself. These guys would add to themselves names and titles to tell you about how great they were. For instance, his name is not Caesar Augustus. Augustus means like the appearing of God. His title for himself was Son of God. In fact, the reference in Revelation when it says 666, it is a human number, is actually referencing, if you add up the letters of his name on the coin, they add up to 666. He says it's not divine, it is a human number. His claim is that he was divine on the coin, and Revelation is saying, now, it's just a human number. It was specifically a poke in the eye of Caesar Augustus. Can I just tell you that over and over again in the Scriptures, there is constantly this whole thing where God takes the titles of men and strips them away from them and then gives them to His Son. Making the point that everything that you think is mighty, everything that you think is impressive, everything that you think is the powers and the, and the, and the ruling over the earth, every superpower that you've ever lauded, God brings to naught, and isn't it true? Can you name a superpower from days of old that is still a superpower today? We're not even sure our own is going to make it. Hello? Each and every title tell us about the faithfulness of God. Each and every title talks about how Messiah, His Son, who he's going to be. This is Isaiah's way of saying to us, this child is the kingdom of God come. He's the whole thing. It's all on his shoulders. He is the counselor. He is the divine hero. He is the author of the future. He is the peace between God and man and all of his creation. He is all in all. He is the all. He is the entire authority structure. He is the entire meaning of the kingdom. He's the one who establishes and upholds justice in the truest sense, not in the sense of getting even. He's the one who determines what is right. He's the one who determines what is just. There's not anything about this king in this kingdom that he isn't. He is all. He is the stuff. Amen. Yes? Amen. And in a way, what makes this particularly interest, intriguing is that all of these titles were given to Messiah before he was born. Now, in one sense, you and I could quickly say, well, yes, but he's eternal. It's true. But the simple fact that right here that these titles are given to a child without a long history of victories in war and accomplishments of governance, it's actually entirely meant to mock the empty titles of earthly kings who had <coughs> earned them. It is, it, is the, 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 it is God's way of saying, yeah, I know you think you're like that in a bag of chips, but... You're not. 
You're really not. You forget who raised you up. See, that's how, I, when we get into Isaiah 10, like that's what he's saying to, to Assyria. He goes, I, I think you misunderstood this. You're looking at yourself as what a great power you are over the earth. You think that you can rule and reign with impunity and you can do whatever you want, but I am telling you that a day is coming when I will hold you to account for every arrogant word, for every boastful thing, for everything you did and, and being policing the world that was unjust. I will hold you accountable. I will devastate you, from, and I will remove your presence from the earth. Anybody been to Assyria lately? Anybody? Can you point where it is on a map? Anybody? No. That's because there is one who is coming who will reign and rule with justice, who will do all the things that Assyria boasted about. And then it describes his numerous works before they even come to pass. He'll bring light to those in darkness, though those, those, those who are lost to the Gentiles. He'll bring joy to the world. He'll make spoil of all of our enemies. His yoke will be light in the place of where there's always been oppression. He will end the bloodshed, not be by just some silly rule, but by actually changing the hearts and the lives and the, the way the people behave, bringing his everlasting kingdom of peace, of prosperity, of justice and righteousness to all. Again, in any other setting, to laud a child with grand titles would be presumptuous, even for a child king, but especially before that child is even born. But what makes the difference is that the king yet to be born is the God of whom all things came into being. Remember when you and I go to John chapter 1 and we're told that nothing was made, that he didn't make, that nothing has come into existence, that nothing is without him because he was from time eternal. These are descriptions of his character and his nature before earthly Jesus was born. And so from our point of view today, at this vantage point in history where you and I are looking back over these passages and reflecting Genesis 3 and Isaiah 7 completely fulfilled, Messiah has come, it means that we're living in the midst of Isaiah 9. I want you to take a look back at Isaiah 9 and think to yourself, I'm not just, I'm not just living post-New Testament, I'm also living in the middle of the prophecy that he was talking about. I'm living, it. this is my day, this is my time. The child has been born, and with him the kingdom of heaven is broken into our present reality. Beginning small, it is growing. The increase of his government is being seen as it spills throughout the world. We get this picture from Daniel chapter 2 of the rock that comes in and crushes the feet of the, of the nations, that defeats all the superpowers, and then it slowly grows until it fills the whole earth, and every knee bow and every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord. It's the fulfillment of, of not only of Genesis, it's not only the fulfillment of Isaiah, it's the fulfillment of Daniel 2, it's the fulfillment of Luke chapter 2, when you and I hear these words, and on earth, peace to all who will do his good will. It's a reminder that the angels, that the whole story is happening in your day and time. You live in the midst of the fulfillment of scripture. Thank you. Somebody was paying attention. Are we excited by those thoughts? 
Does it stir hope deep within you? Maybe if I was a better preacher, I don't know. But can I tell you, as I look at this text, my hope is not for us to jump up and cheer, although you could do that, but what I, what I hope is that as we're making our way through this series, as we find ourselves in the midst of Advent, that you and I aren't just doing a bunch of more Christmas fables. That Christmas isn't just a season in which we're more focused on a, a, a fat man in a red suit. Or even thinking about a child in a feed box. Like in the midst of all of this, right? Like this is the call for us to go back and to remember why it is that we believe that He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Why we have an expectation of God working in the world. Not to remember a child was born as sweet as that is, but that you and I would have confidence in the God who is renewing all things, the God who has brought us the Scriptures to assure us of, of what He is doing in the world, to give us a sense of hope, a sense of expectation that He's at work in the world, to stir up our level of expectation for Jesus' second coming, grounded in hope rather than fear, in expectation rather than worried about social dynamics. Who are you looking forward to coming? Just another king? Or the great and glorious one? How's your peace this morning? How's your peace? He's coming to bring us peace. Some of us find ourselves really kind of out of sorts in what's supposed to be the season of peace. I, but you know, actually, I'm, I'm not just talking about whether or not you're calm. The question is, is, are you and I at peace in the biblical sense with God? At peace with His rule and reign in our lives? Do we find ourselves wrestling with God or wrestling with circumstances beyond our control, having a hard time believing that God has actually got this? I mean, as I look at those stories, right, like as I'm reading this and I'm pointing the way toward the future, the question is, is that as you and I are right here and now in the middle of Isaiah 7 is where and whom and what is our confidence? And where have we placed our hope? So if you find yourself wrestling with peace this morning, that kind of peace, I just want to invite you to stand right where you are right now. I'm not talking about just simply being calm. I'm not just simply talking about it. Like I'm talking about in the midst of a world full of chaos and difficulty and trial, do you find yourself fretting or worried? Do you find yourself putting your hope and trust in anything else? But if that's you this morning, I just want to invite you to stand so that we can pray for you today.
Everybody's good. I'm impressed. I mean, your Facebook posts don't tell me that, but okay. Let's all stand together. Prayer team, go ahead and come on up. You know, the message of the kingdom is an invitation on multiple levels. It's a, an invitation for all who are far off. To those who are far off, it's the invitation to come and see that his rule and reign are good, and therefore they are good news. That really is the good news of the kingdom. We put all the emphasis on the forgiveness of our sins, and, and of course, that's absolutely a sweet, sweet benefit. But, but what makes it really the good news is that his rule and reign are just and right, and it's coming. It's coming. The advancing of his kingdom, it's coming. And one day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. That's either really good news if you want his rule and reign, or it's the worst sort of news there is. But he is coming. So it's an invitation for all who are far off to come and see that his rule and reign are good and why this is good news. For those who are near the kingdom, it's an invitation to surrender to good King Jesus, to let him have his way in our lives, to submit ourselves to his kingdom. For those in the kingdom, it's an invitation then to go and extend that good news, to bring good news to the ends of the earth, to extend his rule to every ethnos, every people group, every ethnicity under heaven. It's an invitation to join him in the spreading of the good news of his kingdom rule and reign. So regardless of whichever place you find yourself in, let me invite you to get some prayer this morning. We've got prayer team members up here who would love to pray with you, to pray for you, and uh, as, you just, as you pursue with questions about what it means to be a part of the kingdom, uh, I know that they will continue to, to visit with you and pray with you going forward. Let's pray. Father God, we want to thank you for your son Jesus, for the hope of eternal life, we thank you for the promise that Advent points us toward that you are coming, that you have established the evidence that you have all the right to rule and reign. It is not something theoretical, but it is something that you've done in the earth. You've provided us with every good thing. You've provided us with the way of escape. You have fulfilled your promises uh, one after another. And so as we look at the things that are left yet to be done, there is a sense of expectation that you can be trusted. There is a sense of expectation that you are faithful. And so, Lord, we're asking you to work in us and through us. And as we leave this house of worship today, Father, that you would send us into the world with that same expectation, with that confidence that you are who you say you are, that you will work in us, that our prayers are not empty, that the proclamation of your gospel does not return void, that there is an expectation that you're coming back. And so we, with eager anticipation, bring good news to our friends and our neighbors that we can't wait 
And Lord, if we find ourselves here today governed more by the fear of what someone might say or by the uncomfortableness, if we find ourselves governed by doubt, if we find ourselves in a lack of peace or expectation, I pray that today you would stir up within us an ardent desire that we would pursue you, that we would pursue the kingdom, that we would pursue the works of the kingdom and that we would magnify your name in all the earth in our conversations, in our relationships. Send us out like people who truly believe. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I hope you enjoyed our podcast today. If you did, there's two things you could do for me. First, subscribe to our channel. That way the most recent podcast will always be in your feed, ready when you are. And secondly, if this ministry has impacted you, would you help us to continue to reach others by clicking on the link in the description to give now. Until next time, thank you so much for listening to The Empowered Word.